0: Good afternoon, good evening, good morning, or good wherever you are, uh, people of America. This is the Rare Bird Podcast, and my name is Robert J. Peterson. Uh, I am the publisher and editor of uh, Rare Bird's imprint for science fiction, fantasy, and genre fiction, California Cold Blood Books. And uh, I am here today uh, in uh, 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 virtually, if not in person, with a uh, fellow California Cold Blood author, Meg Eden, who is the author of Post High School Reality Quest. Uh, Meg, welcome. Thanks, Bob. <laughs> You're very welcome. Uh, okay, so we are going to be talking about uh, our books today. Uh, we're going to be focusing mostly on Post High School Reality Quest, uh, which uh, just dropped uh, a couple of weeks ago, June 13th, and it's uh, it was a heck of a debut. Uh, Meg, congrats. Uh, how does it feel to be an actual published author?
1: Thanks, Bob. Yeah, it feels really bizarre. Um, it's been something <laughs> I've been working towards for a long time, and now suddenly it's a thing, so I don't know. Uh, I don't think it's quite processed yet.
0: All right, well, I, uh, I certainly know that feeling. It's, uh, <laughs> uh, it's, it's one of those goals you, you work just so hard and so long toward, and then all of a sudden it's there before you know it, but... Um, exactly so uh anyway meg i uh, uh I might be biased, but I'm a really big fan of you and of your writing uh b- being your editor <laughs> and, <laughs> oh thanks and uh just- you know just generally like one of your biggest champions uh i think uh uh boy i I, I gotta tell you I remember when you when you submitted post high school reality quest to me uh, as I've uh often said to people when I read the query letter, I remember thinking, well, this sounds weird. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, but it was a really good pitch and, uh, and I was, and I thought, well, like, I want to take a look at this. Um, uh, and I'm so glad that I did. I remember I was 10 pages into it and, uh, uh I was sitting next to, uh, to my, uh, to my then girlfriend, now fiance Lauren. And I remember saying like, wow, this is really something special. And, uh, I am just so happy that, uh, that you stuck with me and that I acquired the book and that we are I mean, it's, it's out now and it is such a special, uh, it is such a special book. And, uh, I, I promise I'll get past the heaping of praise onto you and get to some actual questions, but I just wanted to, I just wanted to sing your praises for a minute. Like it's a really accomplished novel. Uh, I mean, it would be accomplished for anybody but my goodness when i think about uh how old you are and how far along you are in your development as a novelist my head just spins uh it spins in admiration and envy i have to say i uh, you're you're really uh, uh in a great place and at the beginning of a great career so anyway that's uh that's uh, so endeth my uh, my my praise spiel um oh
1: well thanks bob i appreciate that uh,
0: of course yeah um so hey uh i um I would love to hear about uh, the the origins of this book. And here's the thing: for me, uh, when I think about your book, there's a you know there's two really clear uh, uh, places that I that, that I think that it bubbled up from. Uh, and, and one of them, uh, obviously, is uh, is your experience just being a nerd and being a geek and ingesting and enjoying pop culture. It is mm. really a book like Ready Player One um, that uh, that. Uh, bubbles up from that experience, uh, you know, coming from, you know, like my generation or yours. Uh, but could we first talk about um, more of the personal origins of the book? Because um, uh, I I don't think I ever asked you in the editorial process about... Um, how much, uh, j- just like how autobiographical this book was, if at mm. all. And I was wondering if you could maybe, uh, as much as you can, or, or, or feels comfortable, pull the curtain back on, uh, on your life experiences that, uh, that informed the, uh, the development and composition of this book.
1: Yeah, totally. So um, I'm a really bad liar, so everything oh. I write starts in truth. Um, I think what interested me most when starting the really, really terrible version of this novel that was my project in like 2008, um, was thinking about friendship dynamics and how they change as you transition between life stages. So I had a friend, a group of high school friends and we were so tight. And then, of course, you transition to college and people go to different places and the dynamics change a little bit. And I was interested in what that looks like and dissecting that in a novel. And as you know, through our editorial process, characters are what I love and characters are what really roots me in the story. So really just my first couple drafts were me writing like, well let me write my friends, but then kind of tweak them a little bit and just kind of play with them like dolls in a dollhouse, almost like, what if we were in this situation? And like, what if all this stuff happened? Um, And really nothing happened in the novel. It was just a bunch of people sitting around in Merrill's basement, pretty much. Um, (laughs) And I had, it was when I was at community college. So it's funny. I still, um, I actually work for the community college and in the program that I was in when I submit this, but I remember submitting one of the chapters, the fireworks chapter for that workshop. And Mm -hmm. I got, um, one guy who just had all these terrible things to say about it. And I remember even emailing him and being like, Hey, that was not constructive. Give me constructive feedback and don't just tell me it's terrible. Um, and that was actually an amazing conversation where he was like, Oh, I'm sorry. And actually gave helpful feedback. Um, Mm. anyway, weird side note. Um, but yeah, so I think that was just, um, it started in those characters and it started in my experience. Um, then it sat around in a drawer for a while because it was a terrible novel. Um, and then a friend one day was just like, why don't you write a novel about um, in the form of a text adventure game? And my friends always tell me things I should write, and people I know, or actually that I don't even know, that I just run into, you know, will give unsolicited advice about what to write about. Um, and so at first I was like, okay, that sounds kind of like weird, like whatever, but a cute idea. Um, and then for some reason I tried it one day. I guess I was like, oh, that might be interesting, let's see what happens. And I fell in love with second person voice, and I fell mm-hmm. in love with... Um, playing with the mechanisms and mechanics of a video game on the page and just kind of seeing where that led me. Um, And it became addictive. And it also helped me as, like I said, being a character driven writer, I'm terrible at plot. I'm terrible at structure and stakes and all those things. And adding the text parser actually really gave me that. It gave me some skeleton and some bones and structure to work with, with the characters I had. So it, um, I got strapped like five times that year, and I was just bedridden and not doing anything, so I just played with this novel and um, I think in about a month I had the first draft of really what post-high school reality quest is now, um, which for me is incredible because I'm a pretty slow writer and stuff like that. So yeah, I guess that's kind of the journey.
0: Wow, how about that? So it uh so your your friends. Uh, and, and, and yourself obviously provided, uh, something of that initial kernel of that initial genesis of the, uh, uh, of the project. And, uh, just thinking about, um, the way friendship dynamics change. That's a, that is a really astute way to put it. My goodness. Um, and, uh, did you, um, uh, like was, was the transition from high school to college? Was it, uh, was it in any way as tough for you as it is for Buffy in your book?
1: That's a good question. Um. When I think back on it, it doesn't feel like that was hard, Um, but I've realized growing up that I'm pretty sure I'm on the autism spectrum disorder, so transitions (laughs) and change are hard for me. Um, And I realize now that the first time I experience anything new, it is incredibly traumatic and terrifying, but that that will pass, and it will be totally fine the next time. And now that I know that, Things are less traumatic in general, so I think maybe it was less that high school to college was traumatic for me, but that just change in general is traumatic for me, and I used Buffy as a way to kind of process that yeah. and kind of um, deal with that in a healthy way, I guess.
0: Well, Meg, for what it's worth, I uh, I, uh, I want to bump fists with you right now through our computers because, <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, like you mentioned, like the autism spectrum, and and, mm. and listen, like I don't want to, like me, I I don't want to lay claim to some like neurological configuration that, uh, uh you know, that is undue. But certainly, uh, as I have gotten older, uh, I've just come to realize uh, that there are uh, just just certain life events that I have trouble with. Mm. Um, and there are times mm-hmm. where I, oh, I really miss the point of what people are trying to tell me when they're, you know <laughs> what I mean? Just stuff like that. Like, I miss social cues. Um, and, uh, and certainly you mentioned change. And, oh, boy, like, I can't even tell you uh, how hard the change was for me mm. going from uh, from high school to college or from college into adulthood and, uh, and the job market and, and on and on. It's, uh, it is always really, really hard for me. And that was something, uh, that really spoke to me in your book, uh, just as a, as a reader. I was like, wow, God, like I, I've totally been where Buffy is. I have to tell you. Um, so really well done. Thank you. Um, yeah, of course. Um, wow. So I, um, there are so many great characters in your book. Um, like, uh, uh, I, When I first read it, uh, one of the first books that sprang to mind for me was Douglas Copeland's Microsurfs, which which you've since read. Great book, right? Um, Yeah. And it is just... Filled with these unforgettable characters. You know, you mentioned that your first draft of uh, of, uh, of your book all took place in Meryl's basement. And I'm like, yeah. that, sounds, that sounds great to me. <laughs> Hell, that, that's, that's a book, you know? Yeah. And a lot like Microserfs, where so mm. much of that book is about these people who don't go outside a lot, you know? And yeah. um, uh, I mean, I'm rambling now, but I would love <laughs> to hear um, if you could maybe... Oh, just, like, talk about the genesis of one of your other cast members in the book. Uh, I, I guess I'd love to hear about Sephora, but if there's anyone mm. else you would like to talk about, maybe just talk about how you got this certain character up onto their feet and walking around in your novel.
1: Oh, that's that's such a great question, and I'm trying to figure mm. out how to respond to it. Um, sure. I think, in general, what happens is, like I said, taking that model of somebody and pretty much just transcribing what I experienced about people and, um, and subverting that and twisting it. Um, so I think I'm trying to think of a good example. I think Meryl's. can I talk about Merrill? Because I think Meryl's one of the more interesting ones.
0: Merrill's awesome. Please. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, and I think he's one of the most interesting examples, him and Tristan, because of the edits we had to do with this novel. Um, so, for those that weren't in the editing process with Bob <laughs> and I, um, the original novel that I submitted to Bob um, that we edited and worked on had more characters. It had one extra character named Ethan that was in this group. And Bob was just really real with me and was like, hey, we've got too many characters here, and you need to cut one. And I'm pretty sure it's Ethan. And um, as a character driven person, that was like the most painful thing to hear. I sent all these rambling emails to Bob trying to make excuses, justifying Ethan's presence and why nothing needed to change. Um, And I can't believe Bob put up with me and wasn't just like, oh, we're done. I can't handle this person. Um, But anyway, so what was really interesting about that process was um, it was very hard for me to remove Ethan. And my husband was just like, just do it. Um, And so I finally tried it, and it changed all the other characters, because the way it had been configured was Ethan played a specific role, and I think that that was really um, kind of the, I don't want to say stereotypical, but an element that I kind of see patterned in life and in movies and stuff like that, of this misunderstood kind of nerd person, you know, who is like kind of the runt and the butt of the jokes and who exists in the group purely because he has no other place to go, and um, he kind of has this conflicted tension. Um, and so what really interested me in that was the tension between this character, Ethan, and Merrill. Right. So when Ethan was removed, I was like, well, I really love that. And so what happened was that, that those characteristics that I really valued about Ethan in this specific context ended up transferring onto Tristan, and making mm. Tristan into this... Um, a little bit more complex and interesting character. And it made Merrill change too. I think Merrill had started out as kind of this dick in my novel. Like he kind of um, embodied all the people that I had seen in movies and in my life who were kind of the bully leader of a group who hmm. kind of asserted authority and um, that was the way they found their worth was kind of in being this leader. Um, and so I hated Merrill at the beginning. I just like he existed because I needed to channel my feelings about this kind of personality. Um, and over time, I think in removing Ethan and in having the tension heightened then between Meryl and Tristan, Meryl becomes pretty much my favorite character now because he's so much more than that. Um, he is the leader in a lot of ways, but he's also this person that um, is kind of hiding a lot of his feelings, particularly for Buffy, and is trying to figure out who he is. Um, and I think that, that I, he became much more sympathetic of a character in my eyes and right. somebody I really understood as kind of like the... Um, it, I started having a lot of fun asking a lot of what ifs with Meryl. Like, what if Buffy and Meryl had worked out? What if Buffy had changed her views of Meryl? What if Meryl had changed in certain ways? Could they have become a compatible couple? And it, it added, like, all these fun things as a writer of, like, well, what if, what if, what if? Um, and for Tristan, I think what was interesting was Tristan became less kind of the perfect yet kind of weak, idealized goal for the hero and became somebody who also had an ugly side, of who yeah. had his own... Um, insecurities and his own, um, juvenile way of kind of dealing with a lifelong conflict with Meryl. And I think this is a really relatable thing that we have these, um, unresolved conflicts in our lives with friends and with people in our lives that we, um, continue to hang around with, but we have kind of baggage we carry with them. And I think the baggage Tristan had with Meryl really came out super strong with the removal of Ethan. Um, and so, yeah, I think those characters just, that exercise of removing a character, now that's something that I'm kind of, Doing with my future novels I'm working on, I'm like, well, what if I remove a character? What happens to the other characters? Maybe I'll add them back in, but let's just kind of see what happens in the dollhouse when we take one out. What happens?
0: Yep. Uh, Meg, really, uh, really well said. And uh, I, I want to go back and respond to something you said uh, at the beginning um, uh, of that uh, 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 of that passage, and just say there was no there was no putting up with you. All right, like, I, <laughs> believe me, I I knew that was a tough note that I gave mm. you, and uh, uh, I. Uh, I'm pretty sure I said this before, but I have totally been there. Um, I uh, just for just for perspective, one of my other books, uh, 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 Omega Ball. Uh, I remember my buddy uh, Corey Finkel, uh, who was one of my most trusted, you know, beta readers and editors. And mm-hmm. on an earlier draft of that book, I remember he. Uh, got back to me with this raft of notes, and I remember reading his notes and just being so excited. I was like, oh, man, this feedback's awesome. Uh, but then when I really sat back and thought about what, w- like, what would need to happen to implement these notes, mm. I thought, wow, I'm going to have to, like, delete about 85% of what I've written. And Meg, like, not repurpose, yeah. like, just throw it in the <laughs> trash can. And I remember at the time, like, holding my head in my hands and being like, oh, God, what, what was I thinking? <laughs> um, so I. real. I've I've so been there, and we've all been there. And mm. uh, getting back to this idea of uh, uh, of adding and subtracting characters, uh, that's a really that's a really fun thing, isn't it? Like yeah. when I um like the books that I write are really like adventurous, you know, kind of action novels, mm. and and a lot of times I'll combine characters for the purpose of. Oh, if there's, like, a a plot point that needs to be fulfilled at a certain point, and here's just a cheesy example, but, like, if, say, a lock needs to be picked, or some stupid thing like that in the storyline, uh, I'll think, whew, okay, instead of introducing an entire whole brand new character whose only purpose is to, is to pick locks, <laughs> why don't I think about my existing cast and think mm. about if I could assign one of those characters that, uh, that duty? I, I often talk about assigning duties to characters in, uh, in, in the books that I write, mm. and it's interesting the way it works when you... When you assign like a new a new job to a character, if, uh, for me at least, at first they just kind of have that new job, but then invariably, as you really dig into it, uh, as with Meryl and Tristan uh, and and everybody else, you start thinking about, huh, what kind of life would they have had to live to have that job or to mm. have that skill? You know what I mean? And that's yeah. uh, that's an incredibly uh, satisfying and exciting process. To say nothing of the fact that you get to. Um, you get to, it, it is an exercise in efficiency. I, I often, jo- mm. uh, I often joke about how many uh, parts can you take out of this engine and still keep the car running, that kind of right. thing, you know? So, and mm. I just got to tell you, you did one heck of a good job, uh, doing that with Meryl and Tristan because oh. they, they really emerged on the other side of that process, Buffy uh, and, and Sephora too, but certainly Meryl and Tristan, mm. they really came out on the other side of that process, um, as recognizably who they were from the, you know, from the draft that you sent me. Uh, but they were they were uh, deeper and broader and more mm. dynamic than they had been. And I was just, oh, I remember when I read that new draft, I was just so, so excited <laughs> and so, uh, and just so delighted that you really dug deep and made that mm. happen. Like, because that is, I mean, you and I are like, we both write novels and that, that stuff is no joke. So again, right. great, great, great job. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, if, um, uh, if it's okay, I would love to talk with you some about your pop cultural influences. Okay. Uh, of which there are many. Um, yeah. And uh, I would love to hear about um, uh, any and all uh, video games that really served as uh, uh, as inspirations for this book. Uh, uh, video games or choose your own adventure novels, which is clearly like one of the influences yeah. for this as well. But uh, like, talk to me about games, they're it out with me.
1: Yeah, so these questions are always hard for me because I guess, I don't know, I'm so bad at remembering what things like, it's almost selfish of me. Like I just take (laughs) it as my own and I'm like, oh, well that was totally my idea. Um, But I I could say most clearly what inspired this was, um, like I said, my friend was saying, taking this in the form of a text adventure game. And I feel like such a poser, but my introduction to text adventure games was not through an actual physical text adventure, but through um, a remake of that kind of concept called the Parsley games, which are these, yeah, have you heard of them?
0: No, uh, I haven't. Please, uh, do tell.
1: Yeah, so they are these interactive text adventure-like games. Um, so you have somebody act as the text parser and the people in the audience or in your group of friends are wow. the people playing as the input. So wow. the text parser will be like, you are in a cottage, there is a fishing pole, exits are left. And you would say <laughs> left. And you know, my friends were on improv that would run these and they had so much fun being the sassy text parser, you know, like, I'm sorry, I can't make out with the princess in the top <laughs> of a tree. I don't understand what that means, you know, and like, and they would just like have so much fun becoming the text parser and making that as a character. So when my friend was um, giving me this suggestion, I really thought back to those Parsley game things that we would do, and thought, like, about the text parser as a character, and how, like, if my friends were playing post-high school Reality Quest as the text parser, how would they respond, and what kind of things would they say? So I think that that was, like, a big thing that was influencing me. Um, Now, with actual games, I'm trying to think, like, I grew up in the 90s, so I was on that edge of... um, a lot more of the relatively newer games. I'm, uh, though I'm aging because now I like I've frozen in that <laughs> late 90s, early 2000s. I still call sure. our PS4 a PS2 sometimes, and my husband is like, "You need to wake up." Um, <sighs> so like I, when I think of gaming, like for me, what were those first experiences were the like the Nintendo games. So that was that's like really I guess where I think about gaming. Um, not right. as much the mechanics like with this, but. Um, when I think of my favorite gaming experiences, it was things like Pokemon and um, especially Pokemon Fire Emblem, Zelda, stuff like that.
0: Right. And when you say Nintendo and Zelda, can you be more specific? Oh, which, yeah. which generation Nintendo and which Zelda game?
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm so sorry. That's a really important thing. Um, I'm thinking N64. That was where I started jumping into ah. things in Game Boy Color. So uh, much newer rather than, like, um, the NES and Super Nintendo. My cousin sure. had a Super Nintendo. Um, and so I guess my first intro is technically passively watching him play. Uh, Super Mario World, and him telling me that I wouldn't understand because I'm a girl, as he would run in over the edge over and over again, and I was like, bro, oh really? I could, like, help you out here if you'd let me. Um, <laughs> but when the N64 came out, then he had to include me, because that there were all these multiplayer games, like Smash Golden GoldenEye, The World's Not Enough. Right, um,
0: right. Probably Mario and, Kart was in there, That's a, you know, that was a huge one. Yeah.
1: Yeah, though, I, oddly enough, I think, like, we mainly just played a bunch of 007 games and shot each other's brains out all the time. <laughs> that was, like most of our well, Saturdays. <laughs> uh,
0: with good reason, because GoldenEye was awesome. That was oh, uh, yeah. I, I was in college when that was really big, and we played the hell out of that.
1: Well, and I remember it being this, like, secret kind of badass thing, because yeah. I was, like, eight or nine, and it was, like, an M-rated game, and I was this, like, kid that grew up in a church in a conservative school and stuff like that, so I was like, there's blood, and it's M-rated. That's so bad. <laughs> so there's, like, almost... Uh, there's not only the escapism of games, I guess, as right. a general function, but also kind of, like... Carrying on this other role, I actually wrote an essay about this recently, um, with gender too, because Goldeneye and The World's Not Enough and things like that were very masculine of games. Right. So going over to my cousin's house and playing these games, there was not only the fantasizing of being in the game world, but also fantasizing about different gender roles and um, all sorts of things like that too. That I could go there and I could. it doesn't matter if I'm a girl or a guy, I could play these games and I could shoot people's brains out and that like... I don't know. There's so many, like, um, I guess, concepts behind games, I guess is what I'm saying, that influenced this book. So not even just like, well, I was inspired by how King's Quest functioned or anything like that. It's more just like the feelings that I had in a video game and all the what ifs that it makes me ask and all these fantasies that it allowed me to have are kind of like what fueled some of the ideas in post-school reality quest too. Wow.
0: um, That is, uh, that is so well said. And it, it, uh, it, it brings to mind one of the experiences that I had uh, mm. playing. Because uh, I played King's Quest. I, I played all those games when I was a kid. Uh, oh, yeah. And uh, I played a little bit of Zork, though that was a little bit before my time. Like, it's mm. so. Side note, it's so interesting just the the really small window that we have for mm. what like lodges in our subconscious as kids. You know oh, what I yeah. mean? Like if I had been born five, ten years later then I would have been playing Pokemon and stuff like that. Right. I just, I just <laughs> missed it, you know? Um, yeah. so, or, or you just miss playing King's Quest. I mean, whatever, exactly. you know, like it's, it's so interesting, but, uh, those, those text parser games, uh, it mm. is so interesting to think about them, uh, in the history of video games and specifically the way um that they were one of the first times and ways that the game developers and programmers were able to insert their own personality into mm. the game experience like certainly, oh, like certainly on a, 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 on a philosophical level like like you know a, a programmer's personality comes through no matter what just like in right. the mechanics and the creativity like warren robinette's personality comes through the game adventure glowingly of course yeah. um but uh, isn't that interesting? The way, like back in the day, like just the fact that the text parser would respond with with spunk and salt yeah. and tang, and that was re- that was really new, you know. Mm.
1: Well, and I just think of like with the Atari games, even those small little Easter eggs that people added. You know that yeah. that was a way that they could add their signature and have this thing that people would hunt for, and it would yeah. create kind of an own, its own game within a game.
0: Oh yeah, God, I uh, I mean, talk about dating myself. Like I know, like I'm 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 many years older than you, but just <laughs> uh, uh, one of my favorite. Uh, a gaming ex- uh, experiences as a kid was with uh, my older brother Jeff, uh, who was about who was about ten years older than me. So you know he uh, we were all like video game nuts like back in the early eighties, and I can remember him coming home from high school one day, somehow with the intelligence needed to find the magic dot in the game Adventure, which oh side note, are, 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 like you're aware of that Easter egg, right? Yeah. An, an adventure. All right. It's a, it's the most famous one, right? And I remember at the time just thinking like, wow, this is so cool. But then looking back, I remember wondering how did we even do this before the internet? Like, <laughs> exactly. who, who did Jeff talk to to find that out? Did somebody else? I mean, I guess somebody else found it out and told him, but it's just oh, incredible yeah. the way that, that, that like that nerd data would circulate back in the day, you know?
1: Yeah, this is a side note, but that's totally mm. something my husband and I have talked about all the time was like mm. the folklore that games created back then. Like for us of the Pokemon generation, it was the whole missing no thing and all the, um, because the first Pokemon games, there was such limited memory, they were really expanding and using the memory to the fullest. So that, but that caused in consequence, all these bugs, you know, but we create all this folklore of like, oh, if you do this and then this, and then this, you can meet Mew and you can meet missing no, and you can do all these things. And, you know, there was no verifiable way to discern whether that was true or not. We couldn't just Google it. Um, But there was such magic to like having that folklore and like not being sure, and trying. It and just the yep. magic of when you did discover those things, it was almost more satisfying, I think, than now because you you did it on your own and you did it through word of mouth instead of just like oh I saw a YouTube let's play that told me how to do this thing or whatever. Uh,
0: I I completely agree and, and like I know um uh, I know I probably sound like I'm saying get off my lawn uh, in saying that <laughs> but there was uh there was a real magic to analog and there was yeah. a real magic to, to to not having the internet around like that's one thing like uh, I. I uh, I don't know what your experience uh, what uh, uh, exactly was like growing up, but I uh, I fell squarely into that generation, um, mm. that kind of micro generation of like you know born in the late seventies, uh, where my childhood was was basically analog, but then my adulthood was digital, yes. and that's that was a really interesting transition to go through, you know.
1: Absolutely, I write about that kind of thing all the time.
0: Mm.
1: Yeah, and I grew up like in what was kind of rural middle of nowhere. And where my, when my father grew up there, it was literally nowhere. That was where all the rednecks were. And, you know, like, it, it's just so funny because now it's um, this development that's uh, very high-end, posh. And even in my lifetime, I've seen a yeah. transition and from where we'd have power outages for a week and we're using the fire stove to, oh, now we have a generator and we can use the computer during the power outage. Like, it's just, it's bizarre. Wow. It's really bizarre.
0: How, how interesting. God. So you... Your, your childhood home was, was remote enough that that could happen.
1: Oh, yeah. Like, we were, um, I think the property I grew on was um, something my grandfather bought. It was an old tobacco farm. Huh. Um, and then he made it to development with maybe five other houses. So if there was a power outage, we were, like, the lowest priority on the rung. Um, and so it, I think there was at least once where we had about a week where we just didn't have power. And, you know, it, I envy that time because I used to just sit on Um, lay down on the floor and close my eyes and listen to um, audio cassettes of my mom's, of stories. And, like, I would just use that space to imagine and think, and now it's almost impossible to make that happen because there's just constantly distractions and there's things that need to get done, and you can always access technology when back then it was like, well, we can't do that. It's not in our control, so let's just sit back and enjoy so long side note, but very interesting.
0: No, uh, that, uh, uh, a a long and welcome side note. It's funny. <laughs> I um uh, as you were saying that I remembered back in uh, I believe it was 1988. Uh, mm-hmm. I grew up in, in Tennessee, uh, in uh, also in the sticks, and uh, uh, there was a huge snowstorm. Which, for perspective, in the southeast, when there's a snowstorm, you'd think we were, like we were getting invaded by aliens. Like nobody <laughs> knew what to do. Uh, but it was a it was a straight up legit like you know. One or two feet of snow, like snowstorm, and uh, our power was also out for a week. And I can remember—I don't know how many books I read that week. You know, I was just like <laughs> on the couch the whole time. We were like cooking food on the kerosene heater.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: and it was great. And uh, that, um, that sense of really, of really, like disappearing, really vanishing, mm. really submerging yourself in in a uh, in a long form experience like that uh, has has become more scarce as I've gotten older. Like I can mm. find it, but I have to be very mindful about finding it. Like I have to yeah. turn off my stupid growl alerts on my computer <laughs> and also turn off my computer and throw it in the bathtub and <laughs> sit down in a dark room You know what I'm talking about? Like yeah, it's, so, it's so, very hard. intentional. It's yeah. very intentional, yeah. And I just uh Oh boy, like I mean obviously like the, the you know the effects that the internet has had on our brain are, are are demonstrable and myriad. But mm. uh yeah, it's um I I miss those analog days sometimes.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like I have to, it, this is why writing retreats and things like that, I guess it becomes a big thing because yeah, uh, yeah. being able to physically um, displace yourself out from your normal setting and choosing to not bring things with you maybe that you would typically bring, like, right. that's like almost the only way to do it. At least for me, I don't have the self-control to be able to do it much of any other way. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Um, well, uh, on that note, uh, can you uh, can you give us a peek into what the uh, uh, into what your creative or writing process uh, is like? And, and let's start with just uh, like on a daily basis. What is that like? Do you write in the morning? What does that look like for you?
1: Oh, gosh. Okay. I'm trying to actually dissect this. Um, it's really hard for me to say because I think my writing process has changed so much. Um, right. I started as a spoiled high schooler on my novelist journey. So I had no adult responsibilities. I really could just sit around and listen to music and write things. And that was all I had to do with my life. (laughs) Um, And so I think like, If I'm talking about my first several novels, like that's how they happened was I didn't have to do anything else and I literally dedicated my time to that. Uh, So these days it looks very different, especially as I'm trying to go back into that. My journey is so bizarre because, so I started writing novels in high school and I wrote poetry um, and then in in, in college and I lived with my parents in college so I still had no real like adult responsibilities. um, And so, and then I got married pretty, pretty quickly after that. Um, and so then suddenly I was jumping into all the adulting, like spouse, right, right. home, chores, like real <laughs> life things that normal people have to do. Um, right. and, and I also jumped into an MFA with poetry at that time. So I completely, my novel side, I associate it still with that. A child that did not have to do any adulting. So it's actually really bizarre now that I graduated from my poetry MFA and I'm returning back to the novel world. I'm having to almost like refigure out the process because it's like, well, my life looks very different and my responsibilities look very different. Um, so it's a little hard to say, and also it's hard to say because when I did that, you know, then I was working on editing post high school reality quest, which right. was written in that former stage, and now I'm rewriting. novel that was also written in that former stage Um, and I'm only now beginning to explore writing new novels and I'm like oh crap how do I do this I don't know how to do this in this new state Um, so I guess that doesn't really answer your question I think the best way to answer your question is that because I started so young I cultivated a habit of constantly being in community with my writing so i don't necessarily say i'm not strict enough to say well from six to ten i write and from (laughs) like i i can't do that and i think at this point i have earned my own trust that novels will happen and writing will happen because i've written like 13 of them at this point um so it it comes out on its own um i do make sure every day to write something and usually what generally happens is when i'm awake and my brain is working I work on novels and that's usually best in the morning uh, because they are complicated and they're kind of terrifying and huge Um, and I usually detox from the day by writing poems and I just kind of like think about a thing and I study it and examine it and it's a nice relaxing thing to do Um, so I guess usually in each day what I'm trying to return to is that in the morning and afternoon I do some novel stuff and in the evening I do some poem stuff
0: um, Meg very well said uh, I for what it's worth, I know I really related to a lot of what you just said. Mm. Um, uh, I was also very spoiled in high school and in college <laughs> uh, didn't have uh, pretty much any adult responsibilities mm. until uh, uh, until I got a little bit older and uh, just some things kind of financially with my family kind of kind of went south on me this is uh, this gotcha. was some years ago and it was rough and it was it was a tough transition uh, like not that I had a trust fund or anything like that, but just where like ever so often, you know, when, uh, when things would get tough for me financially, uh, I always had the option to just like, you know, call my mom and just say, Hey, can you like, help me out a little bit this month? And all of a sudden that just vanished. And listen, I know that it's so privileged of me to even be able to say those things. Like Mm. nobody, like nobody cry for me. All right. But (laughs) at the same time, uh, at the same time it it was tough and it Mm -hmm. was certainly, um, it was certainly sinus clearing. And then all of a sudden, uh, I had to, uh, I had to find a way to, you know, to to make a living and to support myself, uh, while also working on novels and uh, oh, and uh, looking back at just like the series of really awful jobs that I worked over the years, mm. just to like you know <laughs> jobs that where I was like. It needs to pay me some money, but not be too mentally taxing that I won't have energy to write. Right. And uh, it's crazy. Like I remember, Meg, just for perspective, this was um, in my sort of early to mid twenties. Uh, I worked this job at a a photo company. Uh, all they did was process wedding photos, and I did like oh. Photoshop retouching and I processed film. Just awful, awful work. <laughs> I worked a swing shift, which is like four p.m. to like midnight or one a.m. Which, mm-hmm. like, now that I'm an old man, I can't even imagine yeah, working for a swing serious. shift. Uh, but at the time when I was like a youngster who could sleep on, who could like get by on four hours of sleep a night, uh, you know, I would get up at like six in the morning and watch an episode of Buffy and then write for a few hours. Like it was, Oh,
1: it was great. uh,
0: (laughs) I know those are the days. Uh, but it was, uh, it, it's been, and sometimes I, I think that if I went, if I went back in time and like looked at what I did to, to make time for writing in my life, I would be like, you look like a crazy person. Like, what are you even thinking? Uh, but, uh, I'm glad I did it. And it's, um, uh, you know, like it, it's it's tough to do. Like it was tough to do for someone like me who had about just uh, just about every advantage growing up that you could yeah. have. Like I don't even, you know, like folks who who didn't have the kind of breaks that I have, or like had you know have the kind of opportunities or advantages, and yet who still are artists. I just uh, I just I I tip my hat. I'm just in awe. And yeah. it's um, uh, like working on novels first thing in the morning. That is also what I have to do. Mm. Like I. I also think that in the mornings you're one step closer to to the dream state, like yes. you've just woken up, so your subconscious is just like a little bit closer at hand to access, and that's mm. that's a very powerful place to be, and it's hard to simulate, you know. Yeah. Um. But at the same time, uh, I can't say that I always write from six a.m. to ten a.m. every morning. Sometimes right. I'll I'll cram in a couple hours, you know, here and there. I, I'm always like you. I'm always careful to write something every day, but <laughs> it uh it varies when. You know, you got to like worry about your like where your next car insurance payment is, is going to come right. from, you know. So anyway, yeah. pardon me for rambling. Uh, long story short, I totally feel you.
1: Well, and can I say what you're saying about privilege, I think, is so important because the more oh, that yeah. I'm in the writing community, I'm like, this is why we need own voices. This is why we need oh, yeah. diverse books, because like I am in such a privileged state where I have been able to like I've worked hard. But I have had everything to allow me to work hard, you know, and there are so many people that are working hard and they are still having to do all these other things and they are not. And I got so much encouragement from my parents, too. And there's so many people not getting that. So all the more we need to be doing whatever we can to be encouraging these other voices to give them whatever we can that they can keep dedicating time to their art, because it's hard enough even when you've got everything. Yeah. You know, it, the act of writing is a hard and terrifying thing. And then also having to do life and also having maybe circumstances that are a little extra than everyday life. You know, uh, yeah. it's just it, it's it's a hard art. And I admire everyone that is going through it and getting through it.
0: Uh, very well said. Agreed across the board. And uh, yeah, it just, um, you know, um, as I've gotten older and uh, it, like as I've gotten like more kind of like, you know, like aware of just like privilege and, oh. and intersectionality and stuff like that. Like, I just, the uh, best way I can put it is that I, it, I always, always, always feel like a beginner. I feel like a newbie. I just feel mm. so, so ill-equipped and ill-prepared to, uh, to engage with those ideas. But fortunately, I've got a lot of people in my life uh, who, who are very well-equipped and well-prepared and who can educate me uh, as they can and, uh, and, you know, really like, you know, hold my hand uh, in a lot of ways to, to find the right way to, uh, to go about, you know, being an ally or, or as mm. I like to put it, just being a part of the solution and not the problem. Cause like sometimes, yeah. especially for like, you know, for me, like, you know, the prototypical straight white, you know, you know, goofball guy, uh, like more often than not, I'm just I, like, I'm best off just like keeping my mouth shut <laughs> and just trying to help out behind the scenes mm. as best I can. I, and honestly, like I'm, I'm, I'm happy to do it, but it's uh um, it's just, there's so much more we can do. That, that was it. So, yeah. yeah. It,
1: and always so much to learn. Like, ooh. I'm loving reading right now and just hearing all these new voices and perspectives that, yeah, like, yeah. I did not necessarily grow up hearing. Um, and just, oh, yeah. like, I'm always learning and I'm always humbled by realizing how little I know and how much I oversimplify everything.
0: Oh, boy, you and me both. So, mm. um, well, let's see here. We are, where are we at here? We're coming up on the 40-minute mark of this, uh, this sidewinding barnstormer of a podcast here. <laughs> Uh, let's see what, um, uh, is there anything else that, uh, that you would uh, like to touch on? Oh, uh, like next projects or like, what oh. are you a fan of this week? Like what, uh, like, what are you nerding out about? Like, you know, the, you know, the floor is yours. What's on your Oh, brain? I
1: could talk about a few of those things. Um, I could say briefly that I'm working on A couple projects, but one is mainly a YA project that it's maybe my 14th rewrite, and I am sick of having to rewrite it, but I love it so much, it's gotta get right, um, about a love advice columnist at a high school who ends up uh, in a serious abusive relationship issue that she's trying to break out of, Um, and I am just, like, it's just on the cusp of getting it right. I guess I keep saying that, but it feels like it's close, and so I'm, like, in the home stretch with that. Um, With stuff that I'm nerding out on... um, talking about books and own voices i just feel like i need to give a shameless plug to the hate you give by angie thomas that oh, just right came on. out um i don't know if you've read that bob but it is a phenomenal book um and it is it, i guess for me it was thinking about other perspectives and like that book it comes from a perspective that is literally the opposite of anything i have ever experienced let alone been knowledgeable of Um, And so I think I was just like breaking down in tears, reading it, realizing there is so much I don't know. There's so much that has been happening that um, has been around me and I have not been aware. I mean, I love when a book does that. It not only educates you, but it really makes you feel like let's go into the real world and do something about this. And it was not at all preachy. Um, It was everything a book should be. And I love it. and I'm trying to think of what other books. I am reading so many books that I'm kind of, like, disoriented by it all. I'm also reading um, Saints and Misfits by SKLE, which is phenomenal. Oh, yeah, phenomenal. yeah. just
0: dropped, right? Yeah.
1: Yes, that just It was actually the same day as mine, which is uh, how I first heard about it. Um, and mm-hmm. that is another amazing Own Voices book that is from a perspective that we don't hear about enough. Um, and it is um, from a perspective of a Muslim girl. And as a Christian, I totally relate to it. And I think that that yeah. is phenomenal that, like regardless of religion and background, like we can talk about some human truths and some things like just that go beyond um, our experience, like our specific experiences. Um, And I'm not done with it, but I am like eating through it and loving it. So. Uh,
0: That sounds awesome. Oh my goodness. Uh, Thanks so much (laughs) for the recommendations. I got to, I got to get on those. Yeah, that's great. Um, Well, let's see here. Uh, I think we're, I think we're kind of kind of coming close to the end here. Um, okay. is, uh, where, uh, where can people find you online?
1: Um, so you can follow me on Twitter at Confused Narwhal. Um, I've got my site, Meg dot where you can hear about pretty much everything. And I'm on Facebook as Meg Eden writes poems. Though I should great. probably change right. that because I write more than poems. So,
0: uh, darn right. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, okay, great. Well, uh, Meg, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, To to everybody listening out there, uh, Meg's debut novel, Post High School Reality Quest, uh, a text adventure for young adult uh, readers, as it's informally subtitled, uh, is just a it is a sparkling debut novel, Uh, although in Meg's case. It certainly isn't the first novel she wrote. It's just the first one that got published. And it is is—it is one heck of a great read, let me tell you. Uh, it is just just—it uh, is just luminous and thoughtful and, uh, and incredibly emotionally intelligent and engaged and uh, just, just great. I love to say it's like Judy Bloom and Douglas Copeland uh, c- you know, uh, collaborated on a book with a little bit of Ernest Cline thrown in. It is just a, it is a heck of a good read. Um, and uh, as far as uh, me and as far as California Cold Blood, uh, you can find me online. Uh, at robert j peterson uh p-e-t-e-r-s-o-n uh california cold blood is uh c-a-l-i-f cold blood on twitter and i think it's california cold blood books uh on facebook and instagram and feel free to, to follow us and check us out um meg's book just came out on june 13th uh our next release will be uh, in december it'll be the second volume of adam cornman's gray war saga just a uh, a fantastic military sci-fi series, uh, and and the second volume is called "When the Skies Fall." And who, uh, boy, it is it is one heck of a good book, uh, endorsed by no less than a former Navy SEAL and uh, best-selling author Dick Couch, who called it uh, a crackling military adventure. And uh, I would uh, I would humbly agree. So, um, yeah, uh, thanks everybody for listening to the Rare Bird Podcast, and uh, Meg, thank you so much for your time.
1: Thanks so much, Bob.